Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Daniel chapter 12. We're, we're at the final end of the road here, and it's hard to believe that we've spent the past three months. We started back in, I think it was August or September, and now we're at the very last chapter. And it's been kind of difficult. I said the first six chapters would be a lot easier than the last half of the book, and it's been difficult, so thanks for sticking with me. But um, what I want to begin tonight is something that's obvious, and that is we live in a fallen world that's been affected by the curse. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. I have to, I'm used to doing it this way. I'm going to have to do it behind me. So um, back when Adam and Eve sinned, God gave this curse to Adam. He said to Adam, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistle... That's hard to say. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ground is cursed. We have to work the soil to get our food. We live in a world that has disease, tornadoes, natural disasters, um, all types of evil because of what Adam and Eve did, and they brought this into the world. And Paul kind of discusses this tension in Romans 8. He says, For I consider the suffering, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so let me just unpack what that verse means. Paul is saying that all of creation is waiting for that renewal when God's going to make all things new. And we ourselves live in these fallen, sinful bodies, and we wait for what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so let me just ask you a question. Is there going to be a final resurrection on the last day? Yes. Will we receive glorified bodies on that last day? Yes. Will God refashion, recreate the earth into a new heavens and a new earth? Yes. Has that happened yet? No. So we're living in a fallen world waiting for that day to happen. Okay. Do you think that God promised in the Old Testament there would be a new heavens and a new earth? Or do you think it's only just a New Testament teaching? Well, you can cheat and look at the next verse on your, on your sheet. But, so <laughs> it is promised in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah 65, 17 through 19 says. It says, For I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating, for I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall pass away. So this promise of a new heavens and the new earth, this resurrection, this renewal of all things, was promised way back in the Old Testament. But it hasn't happened yet. We still live in sinful, frail, weak bodies in a fallen, cursed world full of trials, tribulations, persecutions. So here's the question. It's a how question. How, how do we live as faithful believers in a sinful world as we wait for Christ's return? 
How do we live? So here's the answer that Daniel 12 gives us, and it actually may surprise you. He contrasts two groups of people. We are to live as those who are wise as opposed to those who are wicked. This final passage of Daniel has two groups of people, the wise and the wicked. The wise are believers in Jesus. The wicked are those that are not. And so let's talk about wisdom for a moment. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Do you think a lot of people in our world today live by wisdom? Or do they live by feelings? They live by their feelings, right? What is wisdom? Well, let me, look, let me give you two Old Testament passages that give us kind of what the answer is. Amos 8, 11 to 12. The time is surely coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God says there's going to be a famine of the preaching of the word of God in the land. What happens when there's a famine of God's word in a nation? People go searching to and fro in all the wrong places to find answers. They're driven by emotionalism. They're driven by personal experience as opposed to wisdom. So what is wisdom? Proverbs 1.7 gives us the answer of what wisdom is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what is true wisdom? It's living in the fear of the Lord, worshiping the Lord. True wisdom comes in understanding God's objective truth and living accordingly as opposed to living according to some other set of truths that aren't really truths and moral relativism. So let's backtrack. Let's go back and think about where we've been the past three weeks. Back in chapter 10, Daniel started having this vision. He's in his 80s. He's an old man. And remember, he's mourning. He's crying. He's in this period of three weeks of intense prayer because the Israelites were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. Remember that first wave of those in exile go back to Jerusalem. And it's hard. It's not what, what it was all cracked up to be. There's opposition. It's hard to rebuild the temple. And word gets back to Daniel that maybe things aren't going the way they should be going. And so he begins to weep and he begins to cry and he begins to fast. And then Gabriel, the angel, one of the archangels, comes to him and begins to show Daniel the future. And there's two aspects of what Daniel sees. There's the immediate future. Remember we talked about last week, over 125 prophecies were fulfilled in chapter 11 in, in, in Israel's in, in history. So there's that immediate history with Antiochus Epiphanes of what was going to happen. And then Daniel's also given a view of the end times of this Antichrist, the actual end of, of world history. So he kind of gets both. And so there's going to be an intense time of tribulation, always, but it's going to be ramped up towards the end. And there's always going to be this cosmic battle in the heavenlies that we don't actually see. So, so what we were talking about the past few weeks is there's, there's spiritual warfare happening. We need to be a people of prayer. We're going to be living in times of intense persecution. And we need to be ready for what God is preparing for us. Okay. Now, with that being said, let's read. This is a short chapter, so I'm going to read the entire chapter. And then we'll go back and... We'll look at it piece by piece, okay? So Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above 
and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of that stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. All right. Guys, ready to understand what this is all about? So really, in this final chapter, we see a contrast between two groups of people. We see a contrast between Christians who are saved by grace and non-Christians who live in rebellion against God. So let me just state from the very beginning, there is no in-between group. The Bible knows of no in-between group. You're either lost or you're saved. You're a Christian, you're not a Christian. You're a sheep, you're a goat. You're dead in sin, you're alive to Christ. There's like this no middle ground. And so this chapter is basically drawing a contrast between those that have a relationship with God in Christ and those that are not. And, and those that have a relationship with Christ are called the wise. Those that do not are called the wicked. Now, he talks about a time of tribulation, a time of trouble there in verse one. There shall be a time of trouble as there has never been since their nation Till that time. Okay, so let me lay my cards out on the table here. Is this a literal seven-year tribulation? I don't know. Perhaps. But here's the point. We are always living in a time of tribulation right now. We're always going to be in a time of persecution until Jesus comes back. But with that being said, I do believe that right before Jesus comes back, there's going to be an intensification of tribulation and persecution that we, we who are alive here on the earth will have to go through. And so I believe there's tribulation in every age, but I think that there is an intense period of tribulation right before the end. Okay, now let's just look at a couple of verses to talk about how we go through tribulation right now, because even Jesus said it. So Acts 16.33, what did Jesus say? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. What does Jesus say there? You, you will have what? Tribulation. Not you may have tribulation. Now, the word for tribulation in Greek is a fun word to say. I'll teach you guys some Greek. Are you guys all ready for it? It's called philipsis. Philipsis is the Greek word for tribulation. What it really means is to be squeezed narrowly like in a vice grip, like to be squeezed tightly. Now, there are different degrees of tribulation that we experience in this world. There are people right now living in places like the Sudan or Iran or North Korea that are experiencing a whole lot more tribulation than we are. But you may experience some levels of tribulation or persecution here in America as well. Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Now, it's interesting. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he starts the book of Revelation out with this. John, Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's interesting. John starts out the book of Revelation saying, I am undergoing tribulation right now because I'm in prison. 
on a penal colony called Patmos. So even John believed that he was going through a time of tribulation. Okay, so we're always going to have times of tribulation. However, there will be an intensified period of tribulation right before Christ comes back. And that's what verse 1 says. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Some people may call this the great tribulation. Um, so let's talk about these two groups of people. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know which group you're in? Are you the wise or the wicked? Well, let's, let's ask the questions because the answers are right here of what it means to truly be a Christian. So here's number one. First, if you're a Christian, and you see it right there in the text, true Christians have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What does it say there? At the end of verse one, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, it doesn't say the book of life, but we obviously know that there is a book of life. Now, here's the $10 million question. When was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Answer, before the foundation of the world. Now, how do you know that, Pastor Sean? Because Revelation 13, verse 8 tells me that. Those who dwell on the, this is talking about the beast, the Antichrist, those who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. So it's not as if like the day you trusted Jesus for salvation, your name was written in the lamb's book of life with a pencil. And then it gets erased if you mess up. This is the sovereign decree of God in his predestination and his election that if he chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved, he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. It was written before the foundation of the world. So your name being written in the Lamb's book of life is equal to God choosing you before the foundation of the world to be saved. Because it says your name was written before the foundation of the world. And that same language is used in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So when did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. When were our names written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so the question is, when was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. When did you become a Christian? When you trusted Christ for salvation. What's going to happen on the final day? Books will be opened, and if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what happens? You're the wicked. Okay, <laughs> Dave's going, he's pointing like down. Yeah, let's read um, Revelation 20, 12 through 15. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And here's the important verse, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. So how do you know you're a Christian? Your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what will happen on that final day? You will be cast into the lake of fire. And so there's going to be a resurrection of the dead on that final day. And so what we find out here in Daniel is very interesting that there's an Old Testament teaching on the future resurrection of the dead. There's not a lot of teaching in the Old Testament on this. This is one of the few places it teaches it. So number one, as a Christian, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
the wicked. If you're not a Christian, your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Number two, here's how you know you're a Christian. Secondly, true Christians will inherit everlasting life. Now, notice the contrast here. Look at verse two. Many of those who sleep in the dust, that's just a metaphor for for death, that you're sleeping, you're buried and dead in the dust, shall awake some to what? Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, there's no middle ground. You're either written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're either resurrected to everlasting life or you're resurrected to everlasting shame. So there is a final resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. So here's the point. On that final day, when Jesus comes back, everybody will be resurrected. Jesus said this in John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who were in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice the two choices there, or the two options, or the two categories. Resurrection to life, resurrection to judgment. What does Daniel 2 here say? Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt or everlasting judgment. Okay, so let me ask you the order. Who goes first in this resurrection? Those who are dead in the ground go first. We who are still alive at the coming of Christ go second. Okay, so let's, let's read this in 1 Thessalonians. Because Paul teaches this. So, Jesus te- so Daniel teaches there's going to be a resurrection. All the way back in the Old Testament. Jesus teaches there's going to be a resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians how this is going to happen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who've fallen asleep. Again, fallen asleep is just a metaphor for those who've died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede. We're not going to go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will arise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. So, if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you've got to wait your turn because <laughs> those that are dead go first. They raise from the dead with a resurrected, glorified body. If you're still on the earth, you get a transformed, resurrected body and you're raised to new life. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are raised to everlasting life to live forever in the new heavens and new earth. If your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you are raised to life with a body. You will be judged with that body and you will live forever in hell with that body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now notice the language here that Daniel uses. Some to everlasting life. Everlasting life. This is the very first time that phrase shows up in the Old Testament. Everlasting life. What does it sound like? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life. It's it's very similar to what we find in John 3.16. Okay, so if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, if if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you will be raised to everlasting life. Okay, what happens to those who have not been saved by grace? Or is this passage of scripture talks about the wicked? What happens to them? Well, it says they are raised to shame and everlasting contempt. The word there, shame, really in the original language means great shame. What will happen when you stand before the great white throne on that final day and you don't have Christ as your Savior? It will be a day of fear and shame 
and disgrace because all of your works will be exposed before God and you'll be judged without having Christ as your righteousness. And then it says, they will be raised to everlasting contempt. Contempt, again, we don't like to talk about this. The word contempt means hatred. Basically what it's talking about is, is hell. A place of everlasting conscious torment in hell. And Isaiah talks about hell. The Old Testament talks about it. Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Okay, let's stop and let's briefly talk about hell. This is not a subject that any pastor should stand up with a smile on his face and let's talk about hell. No, there should be a, a, a soberness, a seriousness, and a sadness when we talk about hell. Okay. But it is loving for me to talk about hell because if I don't, I, I, I'm showing that I don't care for your soul. And so it, it would not be loving for me not to talk about hell. We live in a culture where a lot of people don't want to talk about hell. They don't want to talk about wrath. They don't want to talk about God's justice because they don't want to step on toes. They don't want to offend. That's not very nice language, and we don't want to turn people away. But I want to remind you of something. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible, more so than even Paul. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It would be better for you into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus quotes Isaiah and, talk, and gives a little bit of detail about hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a place of everlasting, eternal, conscious torment. Okay? So this is not, what's being introduced here in Daniel is the very first time this concept is being introduced in the Old Testament. Of a resurrection to everlasting life and a resurrection to everlasting shame in hell. Um, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay. Revelation 14 gives probably the most graphic depiction of hell in the entire Bible. And... Um, it's hard for me to read this without getting a little emotional just because of the weight of what the Bible says about this. But I'm going to read it because I think we sometimes need to feel the force of what the Bible says about this topic. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Their torment lasts forever and they have no rest. I want you to remember that word rest. In hell... There is no rest. It's torment. Okay? So, number one, if you are a Christian, your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you're not a Christian, it's not. Number two, if you are a Christian, you will be raised to everlasting life. If you're not, you will be raised to everlasting contempt and be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, third, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, this whole last chapter of Daniel. True Christians have the spiritual wisdom to know the truth that sets them free. Notice how they're described in verse 3. 
Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay. In contrast to that, what does it say there in verse 4? But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and, shall, and knowledge shall increase. That, that's not a good thing. Many shall run to and fro. What they're saying there is, if you're a Christian, you know the truth. What does Jesus say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're not a Christian, what are you doing? You're running to and fro trying to find the answers. Have you ever met someone like that that's always looking for answers or always looking for something? They're running to this or running to that. They're never satisfied. They're looking for something, looking for something, and they never, ever trust Christ for salvation. They're just a restless soul. They're just trying to find all these different things. Does that, does that characterize our culture today? People just running and trying to figure out stuff. And, and as opposed to believers, we know the truth. We shine like stars. We have the word of God. And so Jesus gives this parable of the wheat and the weeds, and he kind of uses the same analogy in Matthew 13. So in Matthew 13, it says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. What does he say right here? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. We have the Holy Spirit. We've been born again. We have the scriptures. We live in obedience to God's word. We know the truth that will set us free. In contrast to that, the wicked run to and fro, seeking all manner of knowledge, but never coming to the truth. So the age in which we live in, this is kind of the age in which we live in. Everyone is spiritual, seeking answers and trying everything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Three descriptions of a Christian. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. On that final day, you will be raised to everlasting life, and you will shine like stars because you have the truth of God, and you're not running to and fro. You have his word. Okay. Now, the vision is over. Daniel's finally on the bank of the river there in verse 5, and he's probably exhausted He's probably confused. He's probably overwhelmed. And who does he see? The man clothed in linen. And who did we say that was a few weeks ago? Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ. And so Jesus, again, is there. Now, why is it Jesus? Because he's higher than the other angelic beings that are there. And Gabriel kind of has this conversation with Jesus and asks these questions. And so here's the question in verse 6. Notice the question. Someone said, and someone said to the man clothed in linen, like, okay, who's that someone? We're assuming maybe it's Gabriel, who was above the waters of the stream. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, that's an interesting question. Notice what the question is not. What question would you ask? It's what the disciples asked in Matthew 24. The, the question is not, read it carefully. The question is not, when will these things happen? But how long will they go on once they start happening? What question do you think you would ask? When are these things going to happen? Like, give me the timetable. But the angel doesn't ask Jesus that. He doesn't say, when are these things going to happen? He says, once these tribulations start, how long are they going to last? Now, that should give you some encouragement for people that set, set dates and set times and 
have all their prophecy charts out, know exactly when it's going to happen. Because even the angel's not asking Jesus when it's going to happen. He says, how long till the end of these wonders? Okay. So what does Jesus do? Jesus raises his hands to swear an oath. This was kind of like what they did in the ancient days. They would raise their hands to show that they were, he's, he's announcing something that's infallible, announcing something with authority. And then he gives the answer. Okay. And, and again, it gets confusing. What's the answer? So verse seven to the answer. Okay, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Not when are these things going to start, but how long till the end of these things? Verse seven, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. And here's the answer. It would be for a time and times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Okay, what's the answer? How long, how long is this going to last? Time, times, and half a times. Okay, you're like, that helps me out a lot. We'll go down and look at verse 11. 1,290 days. Three and a half years. Times, time, half a time. That's three and a half years. Now, here's the question. Is this a literal three and a half years? Or is it related to the time? Remember what I said a few weeks ago when Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jewish people? And he went in and he slaughtered 100,000 Jews and he put, slaughtered a pig on the, in the Temple Mount and slaughtered a pig to Zeus. How long did that intense period of persecution last? Three and a half years. So in the Jewish mind, three and a half years is code word for an intense period of persecution. When I were, if I were to say 9-11 to you guys, what, what would it be? Would it be a date on the calendar or would there be a meaning behind it? What's the meaning behind 9-11? It's a day of terror when our nation was attacked. Okay, October 7th of this year to the Israeli people, the year when Hamas attacked. So there are certain dates and numbers that mean something symbolically besides just the literal meaning. So three and a half years is, I believe, a symbolic time, or it could be literal. I'm not going to sit here and be dogmatic about it. But what gets more confusing is if you look at verse 12, there's 45 days added to it. 1,335. So three and a half years and 45 days. Okay. What does this mean? I will give you my answer and you're free to disagree with the pastor. If you so choose. I take them to symbolize a defined period of persecution or tribulation that God has sovereignly decreed for his people to endure at the end times. Now, let me give you my, my things that I, let me give you some caveats to that, okay? Since I'm not a dispensationalist, and I talked about that before, um, it may or may not be a literal three and a half years, but here's what I do know. And again, you can disagree with me on these. I'll, I'll put these up there. Hopefully everybody agrees with this. God sovereignly sets the time period. Can we all agree with that? That whatever the time period, God sets it? Okay. Number two, this is, may, may, you may disagree with me. Believers will go through it. And this is like two and three go together. Um, I do not believe in a secret rapture of the saints to get believers out of it. Some of you may believe that the, that the believers get out of it. I, I don't necessarily. Um, so two and three can be where we would agree to disagree. But I think we can all agree on number one, that God ordains the time. I believe whoever's left on earth at that time will go through it. We know that the, number four, the end is only known by God. And here's number five. It calls for faithful endurance and faith on our part. Okay. So here's the best thing I can tell you. This is what some people, you know, maybe this will give you some help. You hope that you're raptured out of it. But if not, you better be prepared to go through it. Um, and here's where there needs to be endurance and faith. 
Because did you notice what verse 7 says? What does it say in verse 7? At the end there, when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. When's it going to end? When the holy people have been shattered. Now what in the world does that mean? That word shattered needs to be broken into pieces, to be dashed on a rock. I don't know exactly all that means, but it, it, it sounds to me like it's going to be an intense time of serious persecution on God's people. So during this time of oppression, persecution, and hostility, regardless of whether it's today or sometime in the future, we will need to stand firm in the armor of God and the grace of Christ. Will we ever be in a position, this is a debatable right now, there's a lot of debate going on right now among Christians, it's an intramural debate. Um, some, I have some Christian friends that believe that things are gonna get so much better that we're gonna basically take over the world and there's gonna be this basically national rise of Christ, Christendom back in the world to where everything's gonna go, you know, basically it's a post-millennial view of ushering in the kingdom because things are gonna get so much better and Christians are pretty much gonna overtake the world. Um, there's more people like me that would say things are gonna get worse before they get better. And I don't know where you guys land on that, but regardless of what view you hold to, I think things, we need to be prepared. Now, God is sovereign over all of this, and he, I mean, he could bring revival. God could change the trajectory. But I don't want to give you this pie in the sky. Hey, everything's going to be great. I'm not going to have to worry about persecution. My job as pastor is to prepare you for this, to prepare us to go through living in a world that hates us. Have Christians ever really been in a position of strength ever, really, in culture? True Christians? I mean, there's maybe been some periods like during the Protestant Reformation and maybe in Europe and maybe in the early days of America, but um, we're always going to be in a, period, in a posture of weakness. Now, what's the purpose of these trials? It's to refine and purify our faith. It's to refine and purify our faith. Look at verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. So if you are to go through intense persecution or tribulation, God is doing it to refine you. Okay, now you guys, when you think about iron and gold, you know, iron and iron ore and all that kind of stuff, what happens? You boil it so it gets so hot that what, what comes to the top? The dross, the impurities, rise to the top. You scoop off the impurities so that you can have that pure gold. But you got to heat it up really hot so that the impurities can get out of that and rise to the top. And so oftentimes in the Bible, it talks about us going through that crucible of suffering so that God can get the impurities out of us to refine our faith. And as a matter of fact, Peter tells us that. So in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, he says, In this you rejoice even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, though perishable, is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, so this is, so let's talk about what is a true Christian versus, okay, so this passage of scripture is talking about what's a true Christian versus the wicked. Number one, your name's been written in the Lamb's book of life. Number two, you'll be raised to everlasting life. Number three, you shine like stars because you have the truth and the truth has set you three. And then here's the fourth thing. This is maybe the one we don't like. But again, we see it here in verse 10. I just alluded to it. True Christians have been purified by Christ. We've been purified. We've been forgiven. We've been made white. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white. Now, do you make yourself white in and of your own works? No. It's something that God does to you when he saves you. 
He purifies you. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or Ephesians 5.25-27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, Christ, might sanctify her. What did Christ did? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So when God made you a Christian, when God saved you, he purified you, he cleansed you, he forgave you. Your sins have been forgiven. You're white as snow. You're purified. Uh, you have white garments. Look at Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, what's the contrast? Okay, let, let's, this, this passage is the contrast. Remember, there's no middle ground. Believers have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Unbelievers do not. Believers are raised to everlasting life. Unbelievers are raised to everlasting condemnation. Believers know the truth and the truth sets them free. Unbelievers are searching to and fro and never coming to the truth. Believers have been washed and made white by the blood of Christ. Non-believers have not. Look at what it says there. What do the non-believers continue to do? What do the wicked do? At the end of verse 10. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The wicked will continue to act wickedly. They're not washed. They're, they're not regenerate. They're going to act according to their nature. And what's their nature? 1 John 3, 8 and 9 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, this is not saying that you are sinless and you never sin, but it basically means if you're truly regenerate, if you're truly born again, if you're truly saved, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you will not live a habitual lifestyle of constant, unrepentant sin. But if you're a non-believer that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you will constantly live in a practice of sin because you haven't been changed. All right. So... Ask the questions of yourself. Have you trusted Christ for salvation? Do you have the assurance that you're going to be raised on that final day? Do you know that you are believing the truth and the truth has set you free? And have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? Have you been forgiven? Or are you the wicked? Now, it's interesting. What, is, what does Jesus tell Daniel to do? Do you see it here in the text? Daniel, sit around and panic and worry about the future because we don't know what's going to happen. Wring your hands and be scared. Do you see that here? I want to show you something. Two, two verses. Notice what he says. Look at verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Daniel, for the words shut up or sealed for the end of the time. And then verse 13, go your way till the end. Go your way. In other words, Daniel, you've, you've, you've been given a vision of the end. And it might be frightening and it might be confusing and you might not know what it all means, but get up and get back to work. Get busy. Go back to living a life that glorifies me. Don't, don't sit around and be passive. Seek the glory of Christ. Go tell others about Jesus. Go do ministry. But don't, don't just sit back and be passive and don't worry. Get up and get busy. And I want you to notice that we have work to do here on earth. Okay, does anybody know when Jesus is coming back? No, we don't. So if we don't know when he's coming back, we should have an urgency to go share the gospel and to do ministry until he comes back. We should have the same attitude that the angel tells Daniel. Get with it. Get busy. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. What does it say? Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast. Keep up the good work. Do work for the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. 
Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, what does it say? Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, and here's what she said. Quote, we shall have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but we only have the few hours before sunset in which to win them. Otherwise, time is running out. Time is urgent. Don't sit back and be passive, but let's share the gospel. And I want you to notice what it, what, what, what it looks like to share the gospel. Look at verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Notice that it talks about turning others to righteousness. It's kind of an Old Testament way of saying sharing the gospel, telling others about Jesus. And when you do that, you're shining like a star. So when you're sharing the gospel, when you're turning others to righteousness, make sure that's on, that you're warning people of the dangers of hell, you're urging people to repent and believe in Christ, sharing the love of Christ. And so... This whole idea of shining like stars, this is kind of a theme. If you guys, I don't know if you guys, you probably don't remember what I preached on a few weeks ago. But remember the end of Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah, where it said, the friends of God, those who love God, will shine like the sun in all of its strength. There's this whole idea that God has caused us as his people to shine like lights. So here's the point. It's not... Are you going to be a testimony? It is what kind of testimony are you going to be? This is the light of mine. I'm the light of shine. <laughs> are, you gonna, are you going to be a good testimony or a bad testimony? Because your light will shine. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Ah, Paul, don't say that. Do all things without grumbling? You, got, you can't be serious. Yes, I am. All right. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We live in a crooked and twisted generation, do we not? What's our responsibility as Christians? As we hold out the word of Christ... Two people. We are shining like lights. We're shining like stars. We're turning people to righteousness by sharing the gospel with them. Because think about it. If the world is dark, what's the only thing that's going to bring them light? Are they going to discover the light on their own? Are they going to produce their own light if they're dark? If they're, if they're, if they're a crooked and twisted, depraved generation, do they know where they're going? They're going to and fro, looking all over the place for stuff. Only Christians have the answer. We are the light of the world. We shine that light of Christ. So we don't know when the end will come. But we need to watch and be ready. In the meantime, as we live out this Christian life waiting for the end, we will face spiritual warfare. We will face hostility. We will be persecuted. We will experience tribulation. But we need to hold fast to the word of life. We need to shine like stars in this crooked and twisted generation. And we need to give people the only hope that will set them free. And the only hope is Christ Jesus himself. So how do you know you're a Christian? Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. On that final day, you will be raised to everlasting life. You are one who shines like a star holding out the truth of God's word. You are one who's been washed by the blood of Christ. You are one who is in Christ. What's the opposite of that? Your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life. You're among the wicked. You'll be raised to everlasting hell. You don't shine like a star. You're running to and fro. You don't have the truth. And you've not been forgiven. You've not been cleansed. So the only thing that I would urge you to do tonight is to make sure you're among the wise and not 
the wicked by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, remember I said earlier, hell is a place of no rest. Notice the very last verse here. What does God promise Daniel in verse 13? Go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. What's Daniel promised? He's promised two things. Rest and an allotted place. In other words, Daniel is going to rise again at the final trumpet. The dead in Christ will go first. So Daniel's going to go before. If, you're, if we're still alive, Daniel goes before us because he's already dead. Okay, so Daniel is going to experience these things that, 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 that he was given. The man who endured the lion's den. The man who endured persecution. The man who prayed three times a day that God's will be done. The man who lived as a faithful servant to the end of his life as a senior citizen never compromising on his faith. Daniel will rise again on the final day. And here's the beauty. We will too. We will rise again with him to receive our final reward in Christ. And what's our final reward? Our reward is the same reward as Daniel. And what is that? Rest and an allotted space. And where's that rest and where's that allotted space at the end of days? In the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven in the book of Hebrews is called the Sabbath rest, a place of rest, a place of joy, a place of perfection, of, of glory. And we have an allotted, what does it mean to have an allotted place? You, what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you there. In my house are many, many mansions. You have that allotted place prepared for you in the new heavens, in the new earth. And when you get there, it will be a place of rest with Christ forever, lasting life. Now, that's the promise to those who are in Christ. What's the opposite? This, this whole passage has been about opposites. What about the wicked? There's no rest for the wicked. There is an allotted place for the wicked, but it's not in heaven. So this is what's going to happen on that final day. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a white robe dipped in blood and the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in the fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wide press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Christ to whom we all must face the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. If you are in Christ, that day will be a day of joy, everlasting life, rest, and he will bring you to your allotted place in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're not in Christ, it's a day of dread, terror, and no rest where you will be consigned to everlasting hell forever away from the presence of the Lord. So there's no middle ground. You're either wise because you're in Christ or you're the wicked. And Daniel ends with this emphatic view of the end that there is no middle ground. And so there's kind of an urgency to trust Christ and make sure you have Christ as your savior so you're ready for that final day. Thus ends our study in the book of Daniel. And we got done half an hour early. So are there questions that you guys want to ask? For a half? You, there's questions, okay. First, what's a diamond? A diadem is a crown. Okay. Like a crown. It's just a fancy word for a crown. Um, 
the other question that I had is, so I'm always confused about this and it, it hasn't changed. When we die, do we go to heaven or do we mm -hmm. stay dead until... Great question. I was hoping somebody would ask that rapture. question. Okay. Yeah. okay. So there is something that we call the intermediate state. Okay, so here's the question. What happens to, let's, let's ask them first, what happens to believers in Christ when they die? Okay, so when you die, your soul goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. Okay. Your body goes into the earth. It's either buried or cremated, or let's say you died in an explosion or you died at sea. However, your physical body is somewhere on the earth, either in an urn or in a casket, decomposing, but your soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. Okay. Now, on the final resurrection, mysteriously, um, miraculously, in the twinkling of an eye, this transformation happens to where, since it hasn't happened yet, nobody knows exactly what it's like, your, new, you will be re, your soul will be reunited with a new body, a glorified body, a changed body, that is meant to live forever in heaven. And so at that time, you will be reunited body and soul and you'll live forever in heaven with that new body. But until the resurrection, right now in heaven, only souls are there right now without bodies. Now, here's the point. I've always asked this question. Let's say somebody died a thousand years ago. Are they up there like waiting around for a thousand? When's my body coming? When's my, this is a long time waiting. It's like, are they like waiting a thousand? Like, or is it so seamless because it's outside of time that the moment you die and the resurrection, it almost seems like the same. I, I don't know. The point is, is that if you are in Christ and you are in his presence, there's no fear, there's no dread, there's joy, there's hope, there's perfection. You're not worrying about where your body is. You're experiencing the full joy of the Lord in his presence until the resurrection. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. What, what, all right. So, so, I mean, I, I understand. So the soul goes to heaven immediately. Yes. And it's, it's the, what they're talking about is the body. So if a person dies and goes to hell, are they? Okay, that's a different question. Okay, so let's, yeah. answer, let's ask that question. Okay, that was believers. Okay, all right, what about unbelievers? Those that die without Christ as their savior. Okay, this is, this is what I believe. I'm not dogmatic on it, but this is the best explanation I can make. Their soul goes immediately to, to Hades or, or hell. Okay, they too will be raised up on the final day too, and they will be reunited with their body and their soul and body will be reunited. And they will have to face the judgment to pay for or to account for the deeds that they did in their body. Okay, Then in that body that they've been resurrected with, they will be thrown into what I would call hell 2.0, which is the lake of fire, where they will live forever in the lake of fire in a body, not just soul, but body and soul. So it's almost like right now, believers' souls are in heaven. Unbelievers' souls are in, whether you want to call it hell 1.0, whether you want to call it Hades, whether you want to call it whatever, it's not heaven. It's a place of judgment. But it's not going to be the full judgment until they get raised with their body, face the great white throne judgment, and then it says they're thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Um, so I think the lake of fire, for lack of a better term, hell 2.0. Hell 1.0 is like where their soul is right now. When they get their body and face judgment, the lake of fire is like hell 2.0. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A lot clearer. Those are good questions. Um, somebody's asking a question. A little on the subject. Jamie, I see you on there, and I can't read your questions, but maybe I'll answer them as later. Somebody's asking questions through the live. I'm not used to doing live questions because it's kind of hard to see. Are there, are there any other questions? 
It's all right if you guys do. So mine kind of goes back a little ways. Okay. Antiochus, is there two Antiochuses? I got confused from last, I watched last time. No, the same guy. Okay. Yeah. It's it just a different... Yeah, it's, it's the same guy. He shows up earlier than he shows up again in Daniel. He was a literal guy in history. He was the ruler of um, the, um, the Syrian forces um, that broke off of, of the four generals. And then um, he was basically the persecutor. Like, he was almost like a, a, an ancient Hitler-type right. persecutor. Yeah, he's the same... Okay. Antiochus Epiphanes sure is the same guy we were talking about. I wasn't physically here last night. Yeah, the little, the little horn. He's the same guy as the little horn. Um, a prototype of the Antichrist that's going to come at the end times, but a literal man in history. All right, any other questions? You guys get out early. I don't know if the kids are done with their practice. That's why we're in the fellowship hall tonight. All right, so we are done with Daniel. And I'm, I'm not going to announce, I guess I could... Well, I'll be announcing what we'll be doing after the first of the year shortly um, as I finalize it. But um, we will be meeting back, I think it's January 10th or something like that. So you have some weeks off, I think three weeks off of no Wednesday night. So enjoy your time with your family. Good to go? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the study in Daniel. I know it's been deep. I know it's been at times confusing, but Lord, help us to take the, glean the things out of it that Lord, um, you help us to understand. And, and Lord, my prayer is that everybody leaves this place tonight knowing for certain that they do have eternal life, that they do have Christ as their savior and that they don't have to fear that day, but they look forward to that day with joy. It's a blessed hope, the, re the return of you, Jesus. And so Lord, we do pray that we would have an urgency to shine like stars and share the gospel with those around us that don't know you, especially this Christmas time of year. Help us to be lights in a dark world. And we ask this.